Welcome to After School Democracy, the podcast that attempts to fill in the gaps you almost certainly missed in school about politics, economics, and history. The American right's most common claim is that private property and a laissez-faire free market always brings freedom to the individual people. They always paint all collectivization as evil and an oppression on the individual's rights and freedoms. They point out the lack of freedoms in many communist nations, perceived inefficiencies in the government, unions, and welfare state, and they frame all the collectivization of any kind, except among the rich, as a form of theft and slavery because we all didn't consent to it as the new generations came along. Therefore, all collectivization without 100% continual consent is tyranny. We all have inalienable rights and therefore morality dictates that we should burn down these collectivized prisons and allow us to rise and fall on our own merit. If you view this in a vacuum, this sounds quite convincing. However, the founders of the U.S. and the Enlightenment they loved to trot out as infallible and supporting their ideas built their philosophy on an entirely different starting point that the people at the top probably knew at one time, but their gullible dupes know nothing about. The ideas of classical liberalism came from the understanding of the commons. The world belongs to all of us. We all had a right to use our own labor to turn some of the commons into our own personal property. However, when there was a shortage of certain materials in the commons, be it land or resources, suddenly might made right, similar to that of wild animals. We could all waste our energy on fighting for supremacy, which would waste everyone's time, energy, and resources that we could be using to make things richer for us, or we could come together and divide up the common in various ways based on our collective agreements. Sometimes we divided up the land, sometimes we divided up the resources, and most often we divided up the labor. All of these agreements were a combo of might makes right in egalitarian collective self-interest or mutual aid. Some leaning more to the might makes right, where slavery prevented certain people from having a say in the agreement, to what anarchists and the end goal of communism was being mutual aid far outweighs the might makes right. When two collective agreement groups of people come together and clash, we call it a war. When they decide to divide up the commons in a particular way, in a balance of mutual aid and might makes right, that's called a peace agreement. When a large enough of these peace agreements to divide up the commons occurs, it becomes a nation. At times, the rules of the peace agreement called laws can have unforeseen consequences and the power dynamic can shift over time, heavily favoring some over others. At that point, the peace agreement may need to be renegotiated, sometimes with violence and sometimes with mutual aid, and sometimes with political action. These peace agreements slash defense agreements are what the founders and enlightenment thinkers called the social contract. People collectively gave up some of their natural freedom in exchange for protection and a piece of the commons. One has to follow the peace agreements or social contract to gain the benefits of collective strength that gives more peaceful access to the commons or laws. If you fail to follow these laws or terms of the peace agreement, you forfeit all of these rights and by English common law, you become an outlaw and now had all of your natural rights, but none of your collective rights, and anyone had the right to treat you like an animal and do with you what they wanted, if they were stronger or more organized than you. Everyone is born into the social contract, raised with all the benefits, but never having a say in whether they agreed to give up their rights. If they don't agree to it, they have three options. Become an outlaw, where you can try and scrape by on a commons against an organized group who claims ownership. You can accept it and live day to day, or you can figure out ways to renegotiate the contract. This is called activism. 
If you don't agree to a collectivized thing, you can vote or organize to decollectivize things, aka the electoral system, or dividing up the scarce commons. So instead of being handed out to you so you can turn it into personal property, it instead becomes what is known as private property. Private property is a Roman idea where people had the ability to take parts of the commons and use and abuse it as they wished without regard for their fellow man who might be without. This leads to an even more uneven distribution of the commons. Those with more of the commons could buy slaves from outside the empire. They didn't need to work the land. They were able to buy up more private property of the commons and make more money buying more slaves, political influence, and land until only the elite owned land in Rome and everyone else scraped by to make a living on the margins. This caused the collapse of the Roman Republic and was replaced with the Roman Empire. While there were probably more occurrences of this in the past, this was the most documented. It's because of this that the father of philosophical anarchism, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, referred to property, in this case, private property, as theft. The division of the commons was imbalanced and always led to the powerful getting more powerful and the poor getting poorer. Without some form of collectivization of the commons, the balance would always be unequal. That always led to worse and greater power imbalance. This would lead to conflict and a breakdown of the peace agreement at the point that the powerless outnumber the powerful in their hired armies enough to disrupt things enough that the peace treaty could be renegotiated and a new social contract created. Sometimes violent, sometimes more peaceful and political. Sometimes everyone had to give up more freedoms, sometimes they just had to exchange some freedoms to get others in the new contract, but with the power of collectivization, the commons more often than not were better divided up among more people than before. Because most people don't seem to understand any of this founding philosophy that all nation states were based on, they were able to see only the inequality, problem, and inefficiencies in collectivization. They have no knowledge of how decollectivization has always ended up hurting the average person and allowing a cascade effect of more and more of the commons going to the more and more powerful to get even more powerful. So let's go over the history of decollectivization and what has always happened when it occurs as many also didn't consent to decollectivization and still faced its terrible and harsh consequences. While collectives and collectivization do have periods and histories of injustice and inequality, just like with any other institution, decollectivization always ends in so many destroyed lives and predatory power abusing the little guy. When the founders came over, they had the belief that to own land, you had to put work into that land. Your labor made that land yours. So long as the land was being worked, it had an owner. They were horrified that native people viewed the commons much more primitively to their eyes as belonging to everyone and the land was not divided up. Your labor gave you personal property, but the land was everyone's. A large part of this was the rich abundance of foods available just through pure luck that allowed the scarcity of food and materials to be much lower than in Europe. They could get more out of their land thanks to controlled burning that allowed bison and deer to graze all over, giving them everything they needed. Because there was no way to fence in or claim ownership of deer and bison, the idea of dividing up land seemed silly and ridiculous to them. This is, of course, no utopia, there were still wars and skirmishes, but less so with a higher and much healthier variety in their diet giving more energy to their brains. When Europeans showed up, they reported encounters viewing the natives akin to Greek gods and goddesses, while the Europeans were emaciated and actually quite inbred thanks to lower food output and a geographic bottleneck. This lack of diverse foods, along with higher use of toxins like lead, made them much more violent and less likely to seek peace over war as the natives did. 
That all flipped when these natives got hit by European endemic diseases, decimating the population up to 95%. This collective trauma made them more like the Europeans, more likely to choose war over peace, but each had their own views on what could be turned into personal property via labor. We will probably never know the names of the tribes that existed at contact, as many basically had to merge with other tribes as their populations dropped like flies, forcing them to create the tribes we know today. As their populations declined, their ability to maintain controlled burns on the scale they used to dwindled, so when the new settlers showed up 50 years later, they came to an insanely crazy woodland instead of the fields and fields of grazing land, for deer and bison. The trees over thousands of years lost some of their ability to grow apart from each other, and since it went from no trees to unchecked growth where older trees didn't keep young trees in check, it became a knotted mess like nothing ever seen in Europe. Virgin timber really doesn't exist, it's a myth, it just means that it wasn't touched since contact, and since then has regained some of their genes to respace, and the trees that got big enough blocked the light of the other ones, and they have died off gradually until there were more like a forest we are used to. Also, thanks to all of these thousands of years of burns and fertilization by grazing animals, the soil was black and rich and grew crops at a rate Europeans could only dream of, which is another reason why they believe the natives were wasting God's gift to them. Without this perspective, the white settlers decided they need to tame the native peoples and decollectivize their land. Pay no attention to the fact that the settlers released destructive hogs onto the land, as if they were a collective, and got mad and punished natives for killing the hogs that ended up eating the natives' crops. The founders claimed they needed to kill the Indian to save the man, and they started out with a plan to do this. First was the Iroquois Nation. In a peace agreement with the U.S. government, the Iroquois divided up their land into plots of private property to all of the members of their tribe. This in no way was conducive to their burn and graze method, and instead were forced to switch mostly to subsistence farming, where they had no experience in. Because of that and alcoholism caused by the breakup of their collective community, Creating alienation, most slumped into poverty and without a strong sense of private property ingrained into them, land speculators swooped in and bought their land when they were desperate for pennies on the dollar buying the former great and powerful nation out from under them. Taming the natives was mostly just propaganda for this. The settlers knew exactly what they were doing, and people like Washington were land speculators. For new territory during the French and Indian War, they fought in, and Britain made an agreement with the tribes not to expand their borders and allow the natives to live as an autonomous part of the Commonwealth under the British Empire. This infuriated the land speculators, which was probably the biggest fuel among other things that gave political power to go to war and rebel against Britain. A big part of that story you were never told, not just about tea, liberty, taxation, and representation. Also, definitely don't look too hard to the fact that the slave owners put no actual labor into their land unless you count the work of keeping slaves in line. Nope, don't think about that too hard at all. Hawaii is another example of the very same strategy happening. Under King Kamehameha III, a rather corrupt king who cozied up to Western powers, he divided the once collective, though more feudalistic lands among the people, but it required you to be literate, pay a fee, and pay for someone to survey the land. And foreign buyers swooped in and bought up much of the lands from desperate islanders, and the king sold a lot of sovereign land to foreigners to raise money. 90% of the land now belonged to rich sugar planters and did so with zero bloodshed, all legally. This land was switched from being used to grow balanced, sustainable foods to all being used to grow sugar, ensuring the island was not self-sufficient and dependent on the West. And once that happened, it was very easy for a bunch of rich Americans to essentially stage a coup and annex the island without any of the inhabitants' wishes. 
This history was, of course, not allowed to be taught in schools, and at this point, now that they are allowed to be taught, Islanders are torn on whether they would like to become a sovereign nation again, or if they're proud to be Americans considering they were annexed illegally, and their land stolen, and their knowledge suppressed. At the moment, there is a law that any land for sale must go to the islanders waiting in a very long line to rebuy their ancestral land with government help, but since Hawaii is such prime real estate, it could take a century before the land is sold back to its inhabitants. There is a lot of bitterness toward foreigners there for this reason. The beginning of apartheid was created specifically so that Cecil Rhodes, the richest man in the nation thanks to monopolizing the diamond mines and cornering the market and creating with advertising the two-month salary ring tradition BS, had access to cheap, desperate labor. It was a decollectivization as well, and there was a massive land buyout just like the others mentioned before. He also required that black land and white land remain separate and had the government institute what evolved into apartheid so that white people would stay separate from black people and not let them get to know each other and see each other as equals or humans. Black land, when inherited, could not be divided up and only given to one of the children. Since land ownership was required for voting, this heavily reduced black voting power and forced black folks who were left out of the inheritance to go work for white people just as he intended. He, in fact, created the post-slavery white supremacy ideology that influenced Hitler and the modern white supremacist movement, creating most of their talking points they still use. Not because he believed a word of it, he had black folks he admired, he created it for just cheap labor. He used arguments like Africans deserving the dignity of work, sound familiar? And by work, he meant mining and working for white people. Farming on their own lands for their own selves wasn't considered work to them. After apartheid, land reform to return lands to black folk that had it taken away from them, either via force or predatory methods, are a serious contention, and it's been difficult to not have certain problems lead to violence, which the American right talking heads use to claim that South African whites are under reverse racist attack and are the real victims of races here, and why isn't anyone speaking out for them? Mind you, all post-colonial land reform prior to the end of apartheid would put you on the CIA's communist list, even if you just wanted people to have their stolen land back, taken in coercive ways, and foreigners own 90% of most of Central American land for bananas and sugar. America is freaking out that foreigners now own 0.014% of American lands, but the second you want to return your lands to your citizens, suddenly you are a communist and therefore evil. Because of this, we assassinated five heads of state, including President Patrice Lumumba of the Congo, a man who was great for the nation and had fought hard to help free it, where we helped the Belgians kidnap him and drop him off into enemy territory where he was executed. After him, we helped establish Mobutu Seko, an absolute monster of a man just because we could control him and he was pro-American and anti-communist. Castro didn't even start out communist, not even a little. We in fact invited him to Washington once he took over, yet once he discussed land reform, suddenly we hated him because American companies own so much of Cuban lands and we comically failed to kill him multiple times. It was only after the Cuban embargo that the only power he could turn to was the USSR and switch to communism for better trade relations and support. And lastly, let's get to the USSR and why Russia is where it is now. Upon the collapse of the Soviet Union, the government decided to divide up all the collectivized industrial companies that had been run and operated by the unions. Since the Russians suddenly got dumped into a global economy and jobs were no longer protected and available to anyone who wanted them like was before, 
all of a sudden, it was a free-for-all in the job market and everybody's pay tanked, as did the economy. They all had these cheap, nearly worthless shares of aluminum, gas, and other industries that had pretty much zero value to them. And with the help of Yeltsin's government and later Putin, people picked by the government went around and bought these shares up for essentially beer money and became the oligarchs they are today, who essentially own and rule all of Russia like the biggest mafia in the world. With Putin listed unofficially as the world's richest man, as while he doesn't legally own much, he owns the oligarchs, and that makes him even richer. Collectivization is not always pretty, it isn't always smooth or bloodless, and it sometimes leaves the balance of the commons distributed unfairly, but decollectivization always leads to the average person getting screwed over and the powerful continuing to get more and more of the commons. Anytime an industry in the West is privatized when it was formerly nationalized, once they reach peak natural or unnatural monopoly or cartel and secure their position, the costs always spike and the quality always drops. Rail in Britain and transit in America, such as privately owned toll roads for short-term budget gains that the government won't make any money on for nearly another century, are both good examples. The GOP and Tories want to privatize more of the healthcare industry than it already is in the U.S., and the GOP wants to destroy the post office so the UPS and FedEx can jack up prices once it's no longer a viable alternative. Unions are collectivized, and the U.S. went from 30% unions to 10% unions, and during that time, real wages stagnated and slowed and slowly declined. In fact, the House has passed what's called the PRO Act, which is a pro-union bill that will be the most sweeping since the Wagner Act under FDR, and finally gut much of the Taft-Hartley Act that turned unions from what they are in Europe into a bureaucracy that just ensures that no one can get fired, even if they're completely useless. It would end falsely called right-to-work laws, it would enforce strict penalties on all companies that try and use misinformation or coercion to sway a unionizing vote. It would allow for secondary boycotts where unions could call to boycott places that sell the products from the company they are striking against and call for solidarity strikes where the unions in similar industries can also strike to put pressure on the entire industry instead of a competing company getting a financial leg up over its striking competition. It would allow work slowdowns and wildcat strikes again where a section of the company just strikes if it feels neglected. It would also define employees for what they were instead of all this gray contractor area where the company they work for takes no responsibility and can pay the employees less and abuse them more. If you want unions back, contact your senator to support the PRO Act, which is hung up in the Senate now. Collectivization can be messy and painful and sometimes unfair but decollectivization is always just a way for rich people to get richer off the commons and the sufferings of the poor to just keep getting poorer. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.